This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is award-winning musician, Derek Higgins. Something has to happen inside of me. I like for music to kind of present itself to me. Now, that's something else that I learn from old school um, musicians, as well as some spiritual people. Music comes through us. We don't create the music. We don't own it. We're a vehicle. Today's program contains discussion of attempts at suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, help is available. You can connect with the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by call or text at the three-digit number 988. And for Spanish language support, 1-888-628-9454. The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline also has representatives available to chat online at 988lifeline.org. Inducted into the Nebraska Music Hall of Fame in 2019, Derek Higgins is a self-taught music creator and a multi-instrumentalist, primarily known as a bass player. His award-winning experience ranges from classic rock, to reggae, to punk, to jazz, to electronic, to improvisation, and more. In his craft, he's dedicated to the moment of music making, listening to allow the music to speak. Some bands, past and present, that Higgins has performed with include David Nance Mode Sound, Digital Sex, Sun Ambulance, RAF, Hotlines, Indreamer, Chemicals, Norman and the Rockwells, Icky Blossoms, and many others. Higgins' creativity extends to visual art, which he exhibits, and a deep involvement in the vinyl community that finds expression on his YouTube channel. With over 28,000 subscribers and nearly 6 million video views, Higgins shares his appreciation for music and for vinyl records, drawing on his 10,000-plus strong record collection. Derek Higgins, welcome to the show. Oh man, that's quite an introduction. Thank you, Stuart. That that's part of your life, uh, and that's only the small part. We we barely <laughs> scratched the surface. <laughs> I think it would have taken us maybe a half an hour for me to read all of j- just the bands you've been involved in. <laughs> I thought a good place to start is with origins. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, let's start with your origins. So you were raised in a musical household. Yeah. And I know the musical scene had its own vibrancy as well uh, locally around that time. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing what was your uh, childhood like? Sure, I'd love to. Both my parents were musicians. However, by the time I was born, my mom had um, growing health issues. So she dropped out, but my dad continued to perform and tour as I was growing up. So... The great story I like to share is that my parents said that before I could walk, I was rocking the uh, crib, especially to Chuck Berry and the Everly Brothers. They said those two in particular would really get me going. So it's really in my DNA. Both sides of my family are musicians and ministers, both sides. So it's, it's in my blood. So my dad, being a performing jazz 
musician primarily, but he could do all kinds of stuff. He used to have a lot of jam sessions and rehearsals at the house. So I was surrounded by live music from an early age, which was exciting and frankly also rather dangerous because of the mixture of adults, drugs and alcohol and, and partying. So I got to see it all. I also got to um, be in the company of some amazing musicians. I was I mean, I actually sat on John Coltrane's lap in our house, which some people still find hard to believe, but it happened. But besides my dad and my mom, my uncles were involved in music, and my grandfather was a Baptist minister, but he was a blues musician before he went straight. And so it was just everywhere in my life. I must say that as much as my dad influenced me, when the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan, that blew my little mind and it changed me forever it did it's quite an eclectic in some ways looking back it, it feels quite eclectic um was there a moment in your childhood when you actually had that conscious realization that music was interwoven not only in your life but in in who you are you know probably would be a series of realizations because as a small kid with all that music and it just really exciting me and records too. I was really fascinated with records as a little boy. So that was all going on. The reason why I always bring up the Beatles, because it was, it was during Beatlemania that it became apparent to me that this is something that I want to be a part of. And what was interesting is that the Beatles thing transcended race already in my mind. I recognize that this Beatles music by these white people is my music as well. Like it just it was something I just felt. That era of of Beatlemania and the British wave was probably when I really decided that music is gonna be a big part of who I am. I'm painting in my head this scene you're describing of your childhood, you know, whether you're sitting on John Coltrane's knee or, you know, listening to Chuck Berry and the Everly Brothers. Um what was happening? So you were born in Omaha. Mm-hmm. So, so what was happening in Omaha musically at that time? Okay, so my awareness of music in the immediate world that I lived in emerged slowly. So as a young kid, the main thing I knew was what my dad was doing and the church and every now and then when he would take me to gigs. It wasn't until I was a uh, preteen that my dad took me and my brother down to the old market, number one, okay, and let us go to a, um, a live show at the Howard Street Tavern. And then it seemed about the same time that we be, became aware of the free concerts that would be happening, like at Elmwood Park and stuff. And then they would have flatbed trucks down in downtown Omaha with bands on them back in the late 60s, early 70s with the long hair and stuff. And so that's when I started to get an emerging awareness of what was happening locally in Omaha. Um, I started going to shows before I was too old enough to, to get into many of them. Like I'd go down to the music box before it was torn down. And, um, and I was just fascinated with the vibe, the look, and it just seemed like it was just a whole thing. And um, I hope I'm answering your question because it seemed like it just emerged my awareness over time. So in sixth grade, going into junior high, I started being in dance groups. I could dance and we would do the temptation sort of thing, okay? So by being in talent shows and show wagons, 
I became exposed to like the other black kids in the neighborhood who were making music and some of the bands like New Breed of Soul and I can't think of some of the other names. But then LA Carnival was a mixed band, but primarily black that started to play not just on the north side, but they were one of the bands that was mixed that we would start to see with the white bands at Elmwood Park. And so that's when it looked to me like, okay, music is, again, a possible bridge to opening up better relationships. But at first, yeah, I was really aware of, and it's unfortunately still true to a degree that there's a, quite a separation. Um, I want to give credit to Culture House uh, on 24th Street for trying to change that. They really are very much trying to mix hip-hop and young, young, I won't even just say white, but just what other cultures together. You were sharing with me something off-air. You've mentioned that your family context was combining sort of music and ministry. Yes. And it seems that around that pivotal moment in your life, age 18-ish, I think your first band was formed in, in the latter years of high school, and I, I think the band was called Restricted. You also shared with me that you were thinking about a pathway into ministry. Mm-hmm. And of course, history tells us that you moved into music. What was that pivot point for you? What was it that made you think, you know, it is music? You know, Stuart, in my mind, there was never a separation. There was always... <sighs> I've always sensed a deeper meaning to music beyond words. The shifting of vibration, the way it made my body feel, how it would influence my thoughts. And growing up in a religious family with my grandfather, who was very important to me. I spent a lot of time with him, actually lived with him for a while when I was uh, in my teen years. I just saw the connection between sound, this expression, and developing a, a deeper understanding of life in general. They were just always mixed. Another thing that enters into this is um, I went to high school at Creighton Prep. Oh, boys, okay, and it's also Jesuit. But I come from a Baptist background. Being introduced to the Catholic ritual sort of thing was fascinating to me. All that mix while the music was emerging even stronger in my psyche as a kid, you know, Cream and Mountain and James Brown and Sly and the Family Stone, you know, whenever songs like James Brown would say, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, Sly and the Family Stone, everybody is a star. It was just like, there's a connection here. Music is a source of understanding, learning, and growth. It's just, and it's still like that for me, still is. As a child raised in the church, my grandfather was like a god to me, but I was in choir and stuff, and I was also studying the Bible with him as a, starting at nine years old. So I was seeing that, but I was in the church and seeing the other part, which was, you know, anathema to, me, to, to religion, you know. So I was already exposed to the hypocrisy So that was part of the appeal of the Catholic thing. It's like, oh, this seems like it's, you know, they've got it down. And then when I had the experiences I had by becoming an acolyte, wanting to become a jazz, it's like, oh, man, no, this ain't right. You know, I was getting more of a spiritual thing from music and not even music that was necessarily focused on 
a spiritual message. It's coming through the music itself. So let me jump then to um, what I think I've heard you express as the band that perhaps was the one you thought, oh, this this could be it. Mm-hmm. This could be something that is long-term, sustainable, meaningful. And that's the band Digital Sex. Yeah, that's when I decided that I'm going to try and see what happens. I think I'm good. Punk was really important to me. Um, but the post-punk thing where it developed out of just anybody can do it to, oh, well, let's see what we can really do. Let's make some good music. And bands like Joy Division, XTC, Wire, and all that, that's when I got the idea, you know, so my parents were, were musicians, and they studied. I, felt, I was a little dyslexic, and I had a hard time learning how to read music, and so I wouldn't practice, but I'd play, okay? So that's why the punk thing, it's like every, anyone can do it, you know? And so that was my impetus to try and start the band Digital Sex, it's like, we're just going to try to make music of what we are. And I just want to just try to, try to plug into this energy that inspired me a lot to try that. Yeah. This month's edition of Omaha magazine has a feature of you in it. The article is titled Omaha's post punk Prometheus. Yeah. And that's their description of you. And of course the Promethean mythology, right. Uh, you know, other than having his liver repetitively eaten by the Eagle, um, Prometheus as a demigod is credited with giving to humanity knowledge, right. arts, uh, and, and the humanities and civilization. So that does sound more of a description of, of you. Yes, post-punk perhaps with digital sex, but, but it seems that your career has always been marked by being at the vanguard. A French label put out your CD mm-hmm. and the liner notes describe uh, digital sex as saying uh, they are made of the stuff of authentic creators and not that of imitators. And it feels like that fits what you're describing about why you were motivated to be an energizing force with digital sex. So what were you creating? What were the profound and also the prosaic elements of being in that band? At the time, I was, in, I was already playing in bands, obviously, and I was in other bands, mainly playing hard rock at the time. I was involved. I was going out to shows and playing, so I was seeing who was playing, and I was really aware of, in my mind, the changing um, landscape of the music as a result of the trend. You know, We came out of the 70s with heavy Led Zeppelin and then the punk backlash and then the punk settled down and started to become mature and make real music that was the thing that i was interested in is that i knew that i was a good bass player but i also knew i can write also i wanted to create a band that's not gimmicky or just trying to please the audience i did want to set about establishing a sound of my own it wasn't until after I'd started the band that it was pointed out to me by some other musicians that I knew and played with in other bands. They said, you know, you're one of the first guys that I know in Omaha that takes it seriously, that you're not gimmicking it, that you're not trying to find something to hook the people. You're just making the music. And that, and that was the idea. It's like, music is really important. I'm hearing aspects that are not about rock and roll or sex or drinking, but just about this vibration. 
so that that, that was a that was part of it. What was the sort of musical style and what were you exploring musically with this band? Well, I didn't have a template, which is I'm really happy about. It's like an answer to prayers for me that I, when I was a little kid, I wanted to come up with original music. The bands that I mentioned a couple, but Joy Division was the band that really touched me emotionally. But the music was so simple and yet powerful. Even though it was bleak, there was a beauty to it. And I just thought, I can do that. So that was a big one there. Okay, the band Joy Division. An example of your musical reach and being at the forefront of uh, the musical scene is the fact that it was a French label, Sordid Sentimentale, that actually released your album. And am I right in saying it was the only album? By- the, yeah, that's the only album that we put out. Now, the story is that we had broken up several times, and Steve and I, the, the singer, um, decided we wanted to. Um, Preserve the music. So we made the al- first made a vinyl version of the album ourselves. I give Steve full credit, Steve Sheehan, for being the businessman who sent it all over the world to radio stations, um, whoever, to get it, uh, magazines, to get it listened to. And um, I don't know who his connection was in France, but it led to us having a regional number one hit in France which led to Sorted Sentimental as a boutique label taking notice of us. Now, they thought we kind of sounded like The Cure or Joy or the Rudy Column, which both are um, huge compliments to me, you know. I want to remind myself here that this is in the 80s. Yeah, beginning of the 80s. Pre-internet, pre-CD. We were the first band in Nebraska to make a CD. Chip Davis, Mannheim, Team Harold were the only other people they approached us, the sort of sentimental, saying we are about to make our first compact disc because they'd been making records and these really cool limited edition seven-inch singles. Joy Division has one on their label, you know, which again was to me, it's like, oh my God, this label wants to work with me? And they say, we want to make our first compact disc your record. What an honor, you know? I mean, it was such a deal that it made the MTV News at the time. I'm struck by something you said earlier, which is other musician peers of yours have said that you were taking this seriously. Yes. And yet you've also shared that this band that meant something to you that you thought this, this could be something longer term. You broke up several times mm-hmm. and, and the band isn't formed now. Right. And I wonder what implications that had for you as a person taking music seriously it's an intrinsic part of your life and yet this vehicle one of many bands that you're performing with it's not able to keep functioning and sustain itself well i think if i were to be real honest about it Stuart, i was a bit of a mess myself personally at the time too so that's a mixture of it as well so again because i i'm sure that steve will hear this um i want to give him credit because he helped to keep things on track Business-wise, at a time when I could definitely write the music, I could perform, I was sidetracked with drugs, you know, and stuff like that. 
And then the other thing was that I did not have a clear goal in the article in the Omaha magazine. I brought up the band Rush because I really liked them. But they said, you know, in early interviews, well, we had defined it. We want to make it. You know what I mean? That old, we want to make it. I never had a thought about, I want to make it in the music business. No, it was more like, what can happen? What can happen? It was all a learning process. So with Digital Sex, as we were trying to be a band, make the record and grow, learning about the business and growing as a young 20-something was a real mixed bag, you know. That's really what happened, you know. I was a, in development and really wasn't handling everything. Learning, learning to handle things. You've had such a long career in music, and it is not possible for us in the time that we have to cover 10% of that. So this is a tough question, but I want to give people listening some sense of the arc of your musical journey. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked a little bit about the 80s and digital sex, but you know, the 90s, the, the noughties, the 2010s, mm-hmm. and here we are. Have there been moments or bands for you musically that might indicate your own progression as a musician and your interest in music over those three decades? Well, sure. So um, when Digital Sex broke up for the final time um, after the album came out and we did a show and it was just a lot of bitterness, I um, thought I was done with music and actually stopped playing live and going to shows at the beginning of the 90s, like I think for a couple of years. So it's a little foggy as to what got me back into bands. Because all that time, I had stopped being in bands, but I was writing and recording music at home. So I hope I'm answering this. The germ of music was always alive in me. The digital sex experience was very disconcerting and disappointing. And I was put off from trying to be in the music business for a while. I was making music and making cassettes and releasing music of mine just solo before I got back into the swing of being in bands. And I honestly can't remember which band it was, you know, uh, when I became active again. Was RAF uh, sort of a catalyst in the 90s for you? Oh, thank you. See, there's so much. RAF actually started in the 80s. And for a time, I was doing RAF as well as digital sex. That's a whole nother story that's connected with my mental health professional background. That's where I hooked up with these street kids, punks. At the time that RAF started to develop, digital sex was still going in it. In my mind, that was the biggest thing I was doing. And yet the fulfillment personally and that I was getting from being aligned with the kids in the street and then playing with these guys that were like 15 years younger than me and the energy, that was a, that, thank you. That was the thing that kept me going was RAF. As digital sex fell apart, we're still doing RAF, and we're still together. RAF is still together. So as that kept going, but because it was a specific hardcore sort of thing, and I play all sorts of stuff, other opportunities and um, situations developed, and I just found myself playing with a lot of people, a lot of different situations. I, I feel like you're, at any given time, you could be in... Anywhere from one to six bands. At one time, I was in six bands. 
And then it got real bad when I was um, doing six bands plus a solo show. And then I would do pickup work. At one time, I could say I was in nine operating projects. There were a couple of years here where I played every week of the year, the whole year with somebody. It got crazy. (laughs) I had some fun, but it got a little crazy. Clearly, you live your life with and for and through music. How have your interests in music changed over time? What are you looking to explore with your music now? I first will be very honest that the endeavor of continuing to make music is pretty selfish, okay? In other words, when I'm working in my studio or just writing, something has to happen inside of me. I'm not thinking about other people or I can do this. I can say, well, I'm going to make a song like this. I'm going to make a song like that, but that's not how I operate. I like for music to kind of present itself to me. Now, that's something else that I learn from old school um, musicians as well as a, some spiritual people that I um, align myself with, which is music comes through us. We don't create the music. We don't own it. We're a vehicle, and that really made sense to me when I learned it. And so that's what go, what's going on. I work in an, in an electronic milieu primarily right now because it's easy. Mainly, I can't afford a band. I can't afford to pay musicians to learn, musicians to learn my music the way I want it, but I can do it myself. It really is about creating atmospheres, space, sounds that make life more livable. There's a suggestion there that you are waiting for the creative muses to bring some insight to you into, yes. this, into this creative world of, of music for you to capture and play with. But we've also talked a little bit about religion and the ritual that comes from that. Yes. And I'm wondering if you marry the two. Do you totally. have a musical? Okay. Yes, there is something about the process of even just getting ready to write or to sit down and see if something's going to happen. It's a ritual. There is a bit of a ritual aspect to it. Just like the spirit, we are not in control of the spirit. It moves through us regarding values, love, everything. It's the same with music. I can decide like, okay, I'm going to open up the studio today and I'm going to see what happens. And nothing happens. Then there'll be another day and it's like, whoa, you know. Music happens, and any, any artist will tell you this. Sometimes the music comes to you when you can't. You'll be on a bus, and you'll try to get your phone out and try to, ah, da, 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 try to remember this, you know what I mean? So that happens to me, but I do have a way of going about opening myself for music to, to come through. reminder for listeners that we will be talking about suicide. If you or someone you know needs help, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by call or text to 988 or online at 988lifeline.org. 
your bio references you being primarily a bass player, but a self-taught musician uh, with numerous instruments. I mean, is that an innate ability? And how did you perfect this craft of of learning musical instruments? Well, I'll give I'll give credit to my dad because when I was about six or seven, you know, I went ahead and told my dad. I remember this because it's so important. I remember telling my dad, "Well, I I want to be like you, basically." You know, so um, he said, "Okay, well, let's 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 try out." So we um, started out on trumpet, started trying to take trumpet lessons literally and learn how to read that was a disaster so that i moved to the flute and that didn't go much better so in the sixth grade in grade school they started band and i chose french horn and somehow that worked okay but i was still having great difficulty with reading the music i felt dyslexic and so i would just listen to as people are playing and I would just pick up what's happening, so I would end up just playing it from memory. Um, I do attribute some of that to DNA. Like I told you, there's musicians in both sides of my family. My dad had perfect pitch. I don't know that I do, but I am one of those kind of people who I can hear something once or twice and I can play it. Just seems like it really, it's part of what I am. It really is. I like that idea that the music is part of who you are. This is a slightly harder question, I think. But music, I think, any form of creative expression is a way for us to face our fears or imagine our best possibilities, to look at our demons or to call up our better natures. Mm -hmm. You've alluded to some challenges around your own mental health over your life. Yes. To the degree to which you feel comfortable sharing what have those instances been and how has music been as it were, whether a lifeline or a support or a vehicle to cope and accept or deal with that? Well, I'll use one particular story to uh, illustrate this because music is absolutely a lifesaver. Um, I became aware of being depressed before I was in seventh grade. Part of it has to do with my mom's mental illness. She was. And she had a lot of physical problems. So I come from a sibling, sibling strip of five kids. I'm in the middle, okay? And when we were growing up, my mom was in and out of the hospital, um, mental as well as physical. When she was at home, a lot of times she needed a lot of care. And out of the five kids, being the middle one, I seem to have gotten dumped on, okay? So I became suicidal at a young age, okay? I had to kind of. Get my thoughts together here. And um, my second, I cut myself the first time. And then the next time I was in junior, I was in, I was in, I was a freshman at Creighton Prep when this, all this came down. Extremely depressed, suicidal, really, really could not see any point in living. And even though I had the love of my family, you know, it's an internal battle, so no one really understands and knows what to do. Um, the album Days of Future Past by the Moody Blues saved my life. That album, not the words, the music and the feeling, and there was even a sense of ecstasy in some of those songs that just told me this is 
there's beauty waiting for me. I just, you know, so music was a lifesaver. Um, I had another suicide attempt where I overdosed um, around maybe 21, 22. So I'm really bad with, but that was one where it was like, oh, I think I might've really done this. I was at home, did like 45, 50 pills of um, Dilantin, which was for um, seizures. A friend of mine had seizures, but we would take them, you know, because they're like downers. But as it started to kick in, I realized, oh, shoot, I don't know what I did. So my brother lived nearby. I was at home still. And he had kind of a commune with these hippies and girls and stuff. And I made it there before I lapsed into a coma. They didn't. I mean, I was, that's the best thing you can call it. I don't know how many days I was unable to function for myself. But what I'm getting at, Stuart, is as I started to come out of this fog, and I realized, no, I really want to live, but why? It was music. It wasn't people. I mean, I had to just really think about it. It wasn't, I'm a miss grandma and grandpa and dad and this and stuff and I love them stuff, but it was music that motivated me to, okay, you've messed around, you don't want to die, but this is, what, this is what's going to keep you going. It was music. I don't think anybody listening to this conversation would disagree with the fact that it feels almost primal, our human response to music. Something genetic and deeply encoded within us has a response to music. Yes. And you're sharing something deeply personal and intimate about the place of music in your own life. I'm wondering if in a long career of making music as well, listening, collecting, performing, but also making music, if you have a, a picture on the importance of music to people, I to do. humans. I do. I do. It's, um, I'm not exactly sure what to say, but it's just, I understand that music is a universal language and it's about vibration. The thing that, one of the things that we understand scientifically is that the reason why we can perceive anything is because things are vibrating, moving. Energy is moving. And music is that. It's, there's no separation. So you can make music or you can make vibrations that upset the stomach, upset the nervous system. You can make negative sound. For a while I was interested in that and I uh, explored it, you know, industrial music and noise music. So I'm familiar with it. You know, I know about it, I know how to make it. But the thing that has more than, more than anything else that draws me to making music is finding music that helps things do this, you know, or do this. And I bet you'll be able to hear it in some of that music. If someone who had a really intuitive sense of you, would they be able to understand who you are if they just selected from your discography over 40 years? Would they listen to something and think, oh, this is Derek when he was experiencing life this particular way? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, the record collection is definitely like a... Um, like a yeah, it's it's a it's a parallel to the things that you you go through, and have been through, and um, the things that I love the most from the past are the things that still resonate the same way today. It wasn't just like like Kiss, for example, which is just you know like oh, look at the costumes, look at the bombs. It's more like you mentioned Soft Machine before, 
you know, the thing that I picked up about their music when I first heard it was that I'm hearing something deeper than just rock and roll. There's something, something somewhat profound about this sound. And I was right. To this day, that music doesn't sound dated, and it's still, I just don't even have the words for it. It's still potent. Yes. I will move on from sad subjects in a, in a second. I don't mind at all. I hope you don't mind me asking this next question. Obviously I love it. I don't really don't mind. My condolences, because I am aware that you lost your brother, Patrick, last year. It was yesterday, the last year, okay. that I discovered his body. So, again, I'm sorry for that loss. Thank you. And the circumstances, too. Given our conversation about the centrality of music and its, its um, creative and spiritual potency, I wonder if it, again, has been a wellspring of support for you, if and in what way you have turned to music to help you process and move through that grief journey. It's, it's integral, absolutely. And this brings up another thing where there's so much that happened that I completely forgot to mention how I had a family band, you know, after early on. See, so it's like there's parts that before digital sex, there was that we attempted to have this family band that was going to be jazz and R&B and dad and the brothers and stuff, okay? That was quite, an, quite a learning experience. And I quit that band because it, I eventually didn't want to do that. But to try to answer your question, music is the healer. That's what I say. Santana put out a record with uh, John Lee Hooker, and that's what he said. Music is the healer. And I always hear it in the back of my head. It's really true. Um, a few days ago on my YouTube channel, I made a video um, talking to my fan base about my brother's death, and I played some of the music that he and I did. I was trying to get him back out playing before he passed, and um, I wasn't sad at all. It was joyous, you know, to hear the music that I made with my brother, and to just reflect on that deep connection that we had, familiarly throughout the entire family. So um, it's totally integral to my process of living a decent life because I have depression. I have, um, I'm being diagnosed, okay? But I'm not aware of it because of the way that I live and how I manage it. And so I don't mind the question at all because it goes along with how I try to take, I don't try to, I take things in stride, try to see things as clearly as possible try to be as realistic as possible. And so it helps me to just move through the natural waves of emotion and thoughts that you have regarding life and death. So music is the healer. So I'm going to guess then that how you interpret and define the word success um, isn't couched in commercial terms oh, as regards God. music. It's actually been the thing that I learned from watching the Beatles thing that I knew I don't want that. 
I don't want false fame. I'm not interested in the money. I'm not interested in the girls. I'm not interested in the guys. Okay. You know, I didn't make music for sex and, um, digital sex is when I really saw, man, I don't want this. You know what I mean? It's like, I want to make music, but as we were gathering some steam and interest was coming in and all this other, what I call part of the industry, the, 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 I call it just plain negative. Okay. Well, they think they can get this out of me because of what I have. And so they offer this and most of what they're offering is bad for me, bad for us, you know, drugs, sex, you know, getting stuff for free that we're not supposed to get all this sort of stuff, you know? And I guess that's partially why I'm been on the cutting edge because I've always been more interested in, I want to know what's, what's real. I want to hear, I like commercial music, but I want to hear what's real. And I can tell, I can tell there's some really real music that's on the radio, but not very much, you know, used to be a lot of real music on the radio. So commercialism, and to this day, I enjoy very much the uh, um, accolades. I enjoy being recognized for what I do. But if someone were to come along and offer me like a big contract with a big record company with, with a lot of strings attached, that's not what I'm after, no. It sounds as if to enable the creative muses to unleash within you whatever that musical spiritual fulfillment is, you have to resist the commodification of your musical practice. I do, because sometimes, just like right now, so I put out a, a new album last year, label out of Chicago, FPE, put it out, and it's done really well on its level, to the point that they have approached me and said, you want to do another album? I wasn't expecting so we're looking at another album for next year. So I do find myself thinking about, because my records are primarily instrumental. There's some vocals on the CD I gave you. But I'm not interested in singing. And then I found myself thinking, okay, I got another record coming out. I'm almost done. Should I add some vocals, you know, to broaden the appeal and the appeal? And thankfully, I just resist it because it's like, if I'm going to add vocals, it's because I think they need to be there but I do resist these urges and these, and I even get, you know, stuff from friends. Well, things are going pretty good, Derek. You ever think about doing this? You know, and it's like, I do, but that's not why I did it. That's not why I'm doing it, you know? I think something we haven't touched on explicitly, and again, maybe this is a connection back to ministry. Uh, so I'll conflate these two words. In ministry, we might think about congregation, mm -hmm. but I think in music, I'm thinking about a communal experience. Yes. yes. And I'm wondering to what extent, clearly music is a huge passion, it's creation and it's performance mm -hmm. for you, but there's something about sharing with a community that love, and that has found a, a technological, modern, contemporary expression in your YouTube channel. Yes. And so would you share a little bit about... Um, the origin of that channel and, and what it is you do with it. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been on YouTube for over 10 years. And when I started back, when I first started my channel, not knowing what I was doing, the first thing I did was I uploaded some homemade music videos, you know, just to see, you know, and didn't pay much attention to it. 
But then I was browsing and I looked up record collecting and I discovered there, that there were people online who were showing their record collections and talking about it. I said, this is what I want to do. Okay. So I started doing it, but I didn't show my face. I would just show the records and talk a little bit. And it just slowly, it just slowly developed. And it's been a learning experience too, because early on I learned about trolling, you know, and not knowing when it first started to happen, I really responded, you know, publicly, you know, learned some hard lessons. Okay. So at this point, and I've had to let people know over the years, my YouTube channel is basically a vlog, you know, it's a dear diary. My primary focus naturally is music. So I'm talking about it, but I'm going to talk about anything I want to. And I've, you know, over the years received a lot of heat because I'm, I hate politics and I've spoken very, very openly about shenanigans, you know, starting back with Obama. I said before Obama got elected the first time, you just wait for the white backlash. Look at where we're at. So when I'm done today, I'll probably go home and make a video, you know, and talk about this, you know, as well as I plan to go down to Homer's and get the new Black Media album just came out today. So to me, the channel is just a reflection of my life and what's important to me and also using the music as a conduit for sending a message of unity. That is something if you, I don't know if you ever watched my channel, but if you, that's in there a lot where it's like, you know, you know, we just got to find a way to be more together. And, and I'm happy to say that, you know, my, my fan base is international, you know, very international. And um, that's what people resonate with is that the music brings us together and it's a way of recognizing our common origin. What has perhaps surprised you and fulfilled you about the conversation that this forum has generated? I mean, have you had any interesting dialogue with people because of this sharing of this love of music? Perfect. I wore the perfect T-shirt. Do you recognize the flag? The flag of the Aborigine, Aborigines in Australia. I have an Aborigine following Australia. I've never been there. They have sent me some amazing gifts, and they're so expensive. And what they say, and they buy the records long distance, because I don't have distribution in Australia. They have to pay more postage to get my records than for the records. And what I've been told by several Aborigines is they get this spiritual connection, even though a lot of the music is electronic, but they feel it. That's, you know what I mean? And then I have um, a big following in Poland. I don't know why Poland, you know, like I just told you, I'm going to be in a book. You know, they, um, uh, was it last year? I forget, but. I did a series of interviews um, in Zooms, and then they asked for a bunch of pictures and that. And then I have, I have fans in Russia, you know what I mean? You know, um, so it, it, just, it just, just shows what I feel is right, is, is correct. Not right, but correct. Family of man is one. The vibration that can come through music, to me, as well as visual arts, is universal. How are you a different person today? 
you've just celebrated your 67th birthday. Yes. Since the day you were born, you've been surrounded by creating, performing, listening to, enjoying, sharing music. How have you become a different person over those years because of your music? I think the most obvious thing is that it has taught me, and it's something that is very conscious every day, which is to recognize the commonality of life, humans and everything else living, and so therefore to treat everyone with the minimum of respect, starting with little children to people that I don't vibe with and people like Proud Boys and stuff, you know, and all that stuff, you know. People need to be, from my perspective, everyone needs to be regarded as a member of the family. And so I endeavor to be respectful of everyone. And that's an ongoing journey. And I guess my final question then is, what are you hoping that your musical endeavors will will manifest, will, will do for, um, for yourself and for people that, that listen to it? Well, I'll combine that with my message through my YouTube and other social platforms and my, my visual art, which is I just want to be consciously trying to be part of the solution by living and breathe, being part of society. I'm part of the problem. All of us are, you know, just trying to live together en masse is quite a challenge. And so I want to consciously have my music and what I do be helpful. My guest today has been the award-winning musician, Derek Higgins. Derek, thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, this has been awesome, Stuart. Thank you so much. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.